Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. We are back into Sacrosanctum Concilium. Thank God. It's like hot Viennese coffee. Yes. Do you know what Viennese coffee is? Well, I do now You'll since we did the podcast. The podcast. <laughs> if you don't, listen to the podcast. Uh, we are diving into the document again, and we are talking about who Sac- what? Sacrosanctum Concilium on the most sacred mystery of the Eucharist. Finally. This is going to be good. 46 paragraphs of lead up. Here it is. It's the peak. Absolutely. And uh, we are doing our Young Adult Liturgy Conference, and uh, that is on July 12th, 13th, and 14th, and you can go to www.btransfigured.com to learn more. And you should come. We're having liturgical desserts after the Saturday night event. Oh, it's going to be amazing. Dr. David Fagerberg is speaking on liturgical asceticism, and he named it from the desert to dessert. So we're going to have pastries named for saints. Come to Transfigure. Absolutely. And be transfigured. So without further ado, episode 19 of season 3 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of ultra boy? And and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. I, despite having 11 hours of sleep last night, which is my voice is like this right now, I'm still older and grumpier. But you know what will cheer me up? Jesse and Chris, no matter what Chris says, Jesse. Cup of Sacrosanctum Concilium. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice warm cup. With some uh, cream. Oh, yeah. Mm. Some sweet cream. When I was in New York City last, I had uh, Viennese coffee. I tried to make it for Chris, but he didn't want it. Stop ever, heard, ever heard of a coaster, Dennis? Viennese Mm -hmm. or Vietnamese? No, Viennese, not Vietnam. Vienna. Well, Vietnamese iced coffee is delicious, by the way. Anyway, Viennese. I'm talking about Viennese hot coffee. Just clarifying. They mix it with cocoa and uh, then they put whipped cream on it with hot, uh, no, not hot, but uh, chocolate syrup on top. Ooh, it's, it's like, like coffee. A, it, well, there's coffee in it, but then it's sort of like hot. It's coffiness is. You know, Vienna is known for its fancy coffees and pastries and stuff. It's really good. Hey, Dennis, yeah. Chris wants us to stick to the text. So can oh, we stop uh, talking about coffee? Well, we are kind of talking about. Keep your opinions to yourself. The Viennese coffee of sacraments in All chapter right. two, oh, boy. <laughs> which is the most sacred mystery of the Eucharist. What? Coffee, life-giving. Yes. Oh, this Eucharist, should, this should be like a pretty important Eucharist, part of the life-giving. Document. Viennese coffee, sweet and delightful. Eucharist, sweet and delightful. A pledge of future glory, I would say definitely at a lower level, coffee does that. It makes you feel eschatologically participatory in the face of God. The Eucharist does all that. So coffee, Viennese coffee. and that. Chris is looking at me like, are you done with that? Let's look at paragraph 47. You know what we're going to do today, what are we I think. Do? We are going to get to the halfway point almost of Sacrosanic Agilium. Oh, that makes that me might sad. be how would for you, me. That's how would you, exciting. How would you feel if I said I already thought we were at that halfway no, point? This will be uh, demoralizing <laughs> for some. It's like, oh man, see all these, that work? these podcasts give you a taste of eternity because yeah. they just don't. This end. This is the hump day of Sacrosanctum Concilium, right here. Hump day, the most sacred mystery of the Eucharist. Okay, forty-seven. Okay, and forward. What about it? Everything we've been talking about now has been the church wants this, the church wants that, liturgy is this, principles, blah, blah, blah. Finally, we're getting to the meat of the thing, right? Yeah, that's true. This is, uh, I don't know what your text says above it. This is chapter two. So everything 
to this point has just been introductory principles. Chapter one. Yeah, it has been, in other words, chapter one, I think is what they would call it. And now, oh, okay. Now we're chapter two. Paragraph three. Make sure you're tracking there, Jesse. Wow. Okay. So let me get my pocket guide out like you. I like Dennis's over here. He's got this. <laughs> you guys, this I'm going to take a picture of the, of this. Uh, you guys should uh, council see documents. These two the bo- and their documents. It's completely falling apart. Yeah. This is the actual uh, first printing of the Abbott Gallagher tra- uh, uh, translation, which to that's me, a good to one, my yeah. mind, is the good one. The other one is the, um, what is his name? Is it O'Connell? Oh, uh, yeah. There's several of them out there. There's that blue one with the yellow around it that, uh, mm-hmm. that Dominican translated. I forget who mm-hmm. it was. 47, at the Last Supper, on the night when he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. All right, right there, Eucharistic sacrifice, despite what people said after Vatican II downplayed the sacrifice. Yeah, no, it's pretty explicit there. Whatever the uh, so-called spirit of Vatican II uh, would have said, and it's why did clear he it's a sacrifice. do this in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the centuries until he should come again? Now, that's an interesting thing. We tend to think Christ died on the cross. It was one event. It was over. And we're kind of in the Jesus Club or in the Heaven Club, but it's not that. He couldn't be on the cross forever, but he wanted the realities of that sacrifice to continue through the centuries for us to participate in. Yeah. Well, that's it. Explain that. Why, how do you, why, why is it made available to us then? The sacrifice? Because we so weren't we can... there in the year 33 AD or whatever the chronological time actually was. People weren't born. They didn't, didn't have free will. They haven't had the chance. You know, if you're born 2,000 years after the event, how can you freely choose to participate in the event? It has to be real. It has to be made knowable and encounterable. It has to be perpetual to too, right? Well, yeah. And, well, when the end time comes, we'll see how, how things change. But what he said, what the Vatican II says is that he entrusted to his beloved spouse, the church, this memorial of his death and resurrection, this sign of unity, bond of charity, a paschal banquet in which Christ is consumed the mind is filled with grace, and the pledge of future glory is given to us. That's, That's a, a very beautiful sentence. Yeah, well, that last part is right out of St. Thomas Aquinas' his little famous thing about, oh, sacred banquet, oh, sacrament convivium. Mm. Oh, but, yeah. But look at that. He has the sacrifice, all the realities of what it means, offering himself to the Father. The benefits of that are not just for those people who are alive at that time, but perpetuated through the church in the form of a paschal banquet. So it's a banquet but it's also a sacrifice and it bonds people together in charity that is love and it's a sign of the unity, right? Because if Christ's body is sacrificed and we're members of Christ's body, we're all one in that uh, body, body of unity. And the pledge of future glory, you can explain that one, Chris. I know you can. Pledge. Mm, can I? Yeah. Future glory. Mm. What's future glory? Well, it's heaven, right? Yeah. The, the eschaton, the... I, mean, I could have explained a, uh, that one. Yeah. Well, but it's... Uh, I th- We've probably talked about this before. It's not just—it's uh, not simply a future thing. It's—it's uh, it's a transcendent thing that's uh, tasteable now. So that the mass is a foretaste of even now what's going on in heaven. It's not just at the second coming. It's both of those things. Were these things that th- this information was just not put out there in this way before? Or why did it need to be said again in these documents? No, it had been said. That's what uh, the best of the 20th century liturgical movement had been saying. And in fact... Um, you could find this all through the centuries, probably, if you read oh, it Oh, yeah. Right? Well, again, as you say, Dennis, this is uh, St. Thomas from what, 1270, 1250 or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, so this is, a, this is a, a summary of the, of the tradition. And, you know, I suppose a couple of things. One is it's not meant to be a, a doctrinal treatise, Sacrosanctum Concilium. Um, so it's, it's laying out some theological grounds, and then in light of that theology, they'll lay out some principles uh, 
uh, of norms. Right. So it's a Eucharistic form. sacrifice, and it's a banquet, and it's right now, entrusted to his spouse. It's a lot of things at once. But those are the two things that seem to, we're both very young, but uh, right after the, uh, yes, we're all you, three Yes, very both young. you and yes. me are really young. Uh, right. Is, is the mass a meal, or is it a sacrifice? And that seems to me... Both. It was, it's well, a it sacrificial is. meal. Bingo. It's a Paschal banquet. It's, it's Which I know m- more about now after having talked about Abel the Just and Melchizedek mm-hmm. and who's that mm-hmm. other guy? Abraham. Abraham. <laughs> that other guy. <laughs> yeah. But if you think yeah. about a sacrifice, we tend to think a sacrifice is you go and you know offer some animal and it gets destroyed and then the banquet is some other thing. But it's actually one multi-part thing, right? The sacrificial offering would be completed when the participants in the sacrifice consumed the victim, right? So this lavish choice portions upon the priest, you hear that language. Even in the pagan world, people liked the sacrifice of bulls because they all got meat, right, when they did that. So the completion of the banquet, or the completion of the sacrifice is the banquet, and there's one big action. And so the idea here is that holding it all together in one place. Yeah, so people shouldn't be alarmed or anything if they... they you have to accept both of those dimensions, the sacrificial and the banquet uh, dimensions. And to, to neglect one of those is to not see uh, the Eucharist, as, at least as the, the church is seeing it here in Sacrosanctum Pachilium, both it of them. It makes me think of um, the time of Lent, where you're sacrificing for 40 days and you're doing all these things, and then Easter comes, and then you get to celebrate in this banquet of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Yeah, there's a parallel there, I think. You offer yourself for an amount of time, and then you get to celebrate the delights of getting that all back uh, fully. Yeah, well, I think in, um, uh, in the spirit of the liturgy from Cardinal Ratzinger, not, not yours, Dennis, but yeah, the other one. <laughs> good, the good uh, one. The, I love that we have to the, distinguish that. Is, uh, so he, he says that the notion of sacrifice has been buried the beneath the debris of... Been buried under the, his best impression. Keep going. I love it. Keep going. The, the, the debris of endless misunderstanding. The debris of endless misunderstanding. <laughs> so he says, uh, it's, most people associate sacrifice with giving up or losing out or pain or suffering, and sacrifice can be those Destruction. things. Destruction. Yeah. Exactly. But in its essence, it's uh, uh, divinization. It's coming into this uh, intimacy and union with God. And so this can happen by giving oneself over in the gift. But also, I mean, think about what happens when you eat something. It becomes a part of you and you become a part you of it. You are what you eat. You want, yeah, well, that's, uh, he'll cite St. Augustine on When you eat the Eucharist, you turn into Jesus. I mean, that's mm-hmm. sacrifice So right. through, this, through this banquet. And this key thing here is that that same sacrifice of the cross is being perpetuated over time. So the church isn't just a gathering of people who want to have a holy hour or a catechism class or whatever it happens to be. The same reality is being encountered, and that's very important. That's why 48 jumps right into that and says, The church therefore earnestly desires that Christ faithful, when present in this mystery of faith, should not be there as strangers or silent spectators. Uh, I was reading, of course, uh, I think it was at... um, it was a Pius XII uh, document. What's the one from 55 or Music 56? Music Sacra? The music yeah. one? Yeah, yeah. And he ta- in this context, he's talking about um, how hymnody can be employed at the, at the recited mass, if the bishop so says, so that the people aren't sitting there as dumb spectators. It's like tossing them, hey, yeah, you can... Well, dumb, no, 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 uh, it's not just tossing them, but I thought that it, it sounds just like this. The church doesn't want people to sit there as uh, silent, as strangers, as dumb. But what's going on before their sacramental eyes is the perpetual sacrifice of the cross. And dumb and, meaning silent, not unintentional. Oh, oh. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, well, no, I no, no, forget no. There's another definition. Yeah, that's yeah. the older, uh, older word. Yeah, yeah. Although I mean, you, you could apply it that way too, right? That that to sacrosanctum concilium talks about uh, no people knowing what they're doing. So anyway, that imagine uh, going to the Super Bowl and you finally get a ticket for the Super Bowl, and all you can do is sit there silently and do something else during the Super Bowl. That would be ridiculous, right? So the question is that the liturgy, at the highest level of participation in the Paschal banquet. Is it, is it quiet and in Latin and you're told that it's not really your place to answer the things where you're supposed to answer? That's not entering into that mystery and therefore not entering into the sacrifice, not being transformed. Yeah, it seems, and this is the, right, this is the question about the reform, if there are questions about the reform. I think there are. We only right, have so, answers about the I mean, reform you know, here, Chris. Well, well, think about this. I mean, on the one hand, what's going on at the Mass and in the liturgy generally is you have the Paschal work of Christ the High Priest. That's the reality and substance of everything liturgical. On the other side, you've got the baptized, or the ordained, the members of the church. And what's bringing those things, those two persons together, Jesus and the baptized, is the mediation of the sacramental ritual. So it seems to me that the sacramental rite has double duty. On the one hand, it has to express authentically and truly, and clearly and beautifully, the saving work of Jesus. And not every sign and symbol can do that. On the other hand, it has to allow the faithful to engage Christ and meet Christ in the signs and symbols. So it seems like the reformers or you know, any uh, liturgical practitioner has to have one eye on Christ and one eye on the people and how it is that the right can mediate between these two uh, persons. And so you know, whether you're talking about Latin or English or vernacular or uh, incense or guitars or pipe organs or whatever, it's got to do justice to both of those uh, elements. Are you teaching that course on ritual and symbol right now? Is that why these words are fresh rolling off your tongue? No, we didn't talk about that in oh. ritual. That's okay. just generally what I think about. But you are teaching that <laughs> class right now anyway. This, this is what Chris thinks about. Yeah. But no, I think if, if, you, if you read these documents in that light to see what they're, what, what they're trying to make the sacraments and the rites do is both of these things. Right? So if it didn't matter if people are around, you, you could express it in ways that you, know, you didn't have to consider if the people could understand it or participate in it. But that's not the only thing that the rite is doing. It has to facilitate the participation of the people. But it's going to happen regardless of whether or not I'm participating anyway, right? What's going to happen? The sacrifice. It is, right. But if that's the only thing that the church were concerned about, authentically sacramentalizing the paschal work of Jesus, then it could take a variety of, uh, of expansive and different forms. But because it not only has to sacramentalize authentically, but also has to let you and your kids uh, and your neighbor be able to engage in that, it has to have an eye on the accessibility and the participatory character of the people. And this is, I think, what 48 is saying. You know, the people aren't supposed to be there as strangers and silent uh, spectators, but have to, have to have it in their capacity to join in uh, the right, meet Christ through the right. And yep. therefore, they should have a proper appreciation of the rights and prayers, it says, and participate knowingly, devoutly, and actively. Knowingly. Yeah, so know what you're know doing. What you were and, doing. Well, first of all, do it, right? And second of all, even better, know what you're doing. So active is do it. Conscious is know what you're doing. Fully do the whole thing, not some of it. And then fruitfully, hopefully, it will transform you into fruitiness, like Chris is so <laughs> modeling so well for us. Well, hopefully, it's, everything we're doing on this podcast is helping people to know what they're doing in the liturgy. It certainly has helped me better know what I'm doing because I, I've noticed 
in the last few years, I've been able to participate more fully because I know what we're doing in the liturgy, which is something I never even knew even before working at the Liturgical Institute. Well, it's just what's the kind of the triad of why God made you? To know, to know love, him, and serve. serve. Him. Yeah. And it's hard to serve something you don't love, and it's hard to love someone or something that you don't know about. So there's kind of a, a not in all cases, but there's a primacy to knowing what you were, what you were doing. Mm-hmm. If you don't know that, it's hard to get off on the right foot. I believe the things you say because I love you, Chris, most of the time. I think you're willing, my good. Right. Jesse, I don't trust at all. So I don't well, naturally. he says. All right, so if people are going to do this, what should they do? They give this nice list with semicolons here. They should be instructed by God's Word, so this new interest in Scripture and the readings, refreshed at the table of the Lord's body, so they should go to communion, right, if they're properly disposed. Mm -hmm. You took a deep breath like you were going to say something. No, I was was a non-starter. Okay. They should give thanks to God, offering the immaculate victim. Here's this. This is how they they give thanks to God. Yeah, if you're following along at home, star, circle, and (laughs) underline this line. He gave you a chance to interrupt And then you interrupt me instead. No, I didn't want to interrupt then. (laughs) Okay. Okay, go ahead. Back. Go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, put a star where on that sentence? Uh, By offering. They should be prepared, etc. Give thanks to God. Now, sometimes people say Eucharistic, Eucharistia just means thanksgiving, right? So Mass is just us going, saying thank you. But actually, this is how you say thank you. Offering the Immaculate Victim. Father, thank you so much for saving us. Here's how it happens. We offer you Christ. Uh, not only through the hands of the priest, but also with him. So the people aren't just waiting around for the priest to do priest stuff. But together, they offer themselves as members of the body. And they should learn to offer themselves too. Yes, T-O-O, two. Now that's uh, active participation at its height. That is, you want uh, Yeah, ring that bell. Do it. I'm ringing it, oh, so annoyingly long, because this is so, <laughs> oh, important, unannoyingly important, right? Active participation isn't just active participation in the right, the externals of the right, but it's participation in the interior reality or the spiritual reality of Christ offering himself to the Father offering his body, blood, soul, and divinity so that he can bring us with him into that offering. And then if we offer ourselves too, we are transformed the way Christ transformed at the resurrection. You could just watch the priest do that and say, ho-hum, and read the bulletin, or you can form your intention to have what happened to Christ happen to you. Give yourself up, get yourself back better and glorified. And if you're better and glorified, then you're a better father, you're a better son, you're a better neighbor, you're a better mayor, you're a better citizen, you're a better country, better world. And then you hasten the kingdom of God that much faster. Yeah, I don't know if there's a more central part of any liturgy, central part of the mass, central part of the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy. Yet, how many people are taught, formed how to do that? All Liturgy Guys listeners. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I, I certainly was not. I mean, I, I never, I guess it's hard to say what I thought the mass was before, but... Um, I guess I probably just call it basic worship, um, mm. worship of uh, worship of God through the <clears throat> through the process and the remembrance of the Last Supper, um, and then being able to you know consume Christ. But I never put myself in that equation fully. Yeah, you know, uh, in the same paragraph, Dennis and I are working off of different translations, but uh, there's this word collaboration, mm-hmm. collaboration in there, mm-hmm. which uh, co laborers. Right, so Jesus is the principal worker, but you're supposed to show up and assist him. Not that he needs your help, but he mm-hmm. wants you to labor with him and operate and work with him it's in like when building I, this Paschal it's Bridge. It's like when I ask Agnes to help me put the dishes away. It takes 
a lot longer, but it's kind of fun when she helps. That's but kind of a nice she learns analogy. how to put dishes away mm-hmm. by putting them away with you. And someday she'll put them away herself without you. And she's become a disher, and fully dish putter awayer mm-hmm. <laughs> because she participated in that action. In those heavenly dishes. With you. Yeah. You remember, uh, sorry to keep going back Probably to this not. book, but uh, this is uh, like the liturgy guy's Bible. I mean, after the Bible, of course. Uh, <laughs> Are there two testaments in the liturgy guy's Bible? In, uh, uh, again, it's, it's Rask, Ratzinger when he talks about active participation. You have to know what the central axio is in which you're called to participate. And what is the central axio? It's Christ what you're just dis- yeah. offering himself to the Father and bringing us with him as members of his body so we can be transformed. It's, I mean, I, I never get tired of talking about this because it's the central thing, right? The priest is saying the Eucharistic prayer to the Father as Christ. And the people are joining in that Eucharistic prayer to the Father as Christ as well. As Christ the head as the priest, as Christ the members of the body, the people. So when the Father says Jesus you know, broke bread, gave it to his disciples and said, he's not saying it to the people. He's reminding God and making real what Jesus did. Present and active in that room on that altar right then. And so you can sort of say, oh, yeah, the, the Knights of Columbus pancake supper is tomorrow here. That's what the, that's what the <laughs> bulletin yeah, says. People should be reading the bulletin during the homily, not at this point. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, even in the homily, the, the church documents there are supposed to prepare you for the Eucharist, right? So you read some gospel thing. Okay, great. Some lesson from some you know, thousands of years ago. Or this is the preparation for my understanding of what I'm doing in the Eucharist, and therefore I can be transformed by the grace of that sacrificial action. Offering yourself as a victim on the patent with the priest, that is yeah. the definition of active participation. Yeah, when that, this is what we tell the kids, right, is, uh, is to get from the pew up into the chalice. And so they, they, you know, they'd make this baseball lob of their prayers, works, joys, and sufferings, They're, all those things that represent themselves, and they mix that together with the wine and the chalice. So then when the priest says, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father, they say, yeah, I am up on that altar. When, when do they do that? When do you tell them to do that? During uh, the preparation of the gifts in the altar. Yeah, when the, well, that's one of the interpretations when the deacon or the priest pours in the, the water into the chalice is the wine represents a Christ and the water is us uh, mixing with him. In fact, after you pour the water in, you can't get it back out. It's, it's mm. joined so tightly with Christ so that when it gets transformed and divinized and given to God the Father, it's, we're, we're kind of coming along in his coattails. Or even that's probably, if I go down, you're going down with that's me. That's probably even too peripheral. <laughs> See, but then when, you, mm-hmm. when he goes when you up, go you're going to go up with him too. <laughs> that's a nice paraphrase of yeah. St. Paul there, uh, Jesse. But, you're welcome. That's exactly right. what I was yeah. uh, and, channeling. And this is Vatican II theology. This is not some old-fashioned whatever. It's right here in paragraph 48. And the, it says here at 48, if you do this, you'll be drawn day by day, ever closer into union with God. So you're united to God the Father and with each other. So the people together, you you see that one bread, one body song. Uh, There's something true to that. There's one bread, which is the body of Christ, which is the mystical body. And uh, as we do this, we get to love our neighbors more. You you say it's not some old-fashioned theology. We could add it's not some newfangled theology either. I mean, this is what... The design was from the beginning. Christ perpetuates his sacrifice as a memorial so that we can join along with it. So once they lay that down, then they say, consequently, we want to do a bunch of stuff with the math, so mass so that this can happen. So 49 you know, says a bunch of things, but especially about Mass on Sunday and Holy Days of Obligation, they want to make some kind of adaptation so that it can achieve its pastoral effect to the fullest. So we have these riches, riches of the Eucharist, but for whatever reason, they haven't been achieving their pastoral effect out in the world with people. And now we're going to do this so that it can, 
So that jumps into 50. The right of the Mass is to be revised in such a way that the intrinsic nature and purpose of its several parts, as also the connection between them, may more clearly be manifested, and that devout and active participation by the faithful may be more easily achieved. Right. right so I think this is uh, what I was trying to mumble out before, is the right has to manifest clearly, externally, in a perceptible way, what its internal and otherwise imperceptible reality is. If the signs are signifying in an obscure way, the result is that we do an injustice to, to God and his saving act and, and how he's worshiped and glorified. But at the same time, it confuses how the people participate. So this rite is this privileged place of coming together between Christ and the people. It's, it's got to do a lot. Everything hinges upon the sacramental but signs But it's almost as if we're like... I don't know, profane intruders. <laughs> Politics, be quiet. <laughs> well, that's what he said it would feel like, but that wasn't what it what actually was. Well, but that's a, that's a good example that they'll get to, all right? So let's just take the case of language. How do we find a language that does that both authentically speaks of the sacrifice of the Logos and allows the people to engage that sacrifice in an intelligible uh, way? I mean, that's difficult. Right, right. And that's the, that's the whole challenge here, simplifying while preserving the substance. That's what the paragraph 50 says. The rights are to be simplified while due care is taken to preserve their substance. Okay, so if you think that it wasn't simplified enough, then you might say we need to simplify more. If it, you think it was simplified too much and actually cut out the essential things, then you might say we've done some grave mistakes. So there, this is the arguments and the discussions that people have um, today. So he, remember, you are uh, the king of... Uh, accretions. Every time I say accretions, you like the oh, word yeah. accretion. I do like that word. So what does it say here? Elements which in the passage of time came to be duplicated or added with but little advantage are now to be discarded. All right. So we talked one podcast about repetitions and useful repetitions versus useless repetitions. So sometimes things get added or duplicated for whatever historical reason and, you know, they don't have much advantage and they're to be discarded. You think of any examples? Uh, well, probably people would have thought the prayers at the foot of the altar were not really part of the Mass itself. They were the preparation prayers for the Mass in this, by the priest in the sacristy. But because it became a private Mass, they would say them at the altar. Because it, priests would often say this, the, the private Mass, as we call it, at the altar, they would just do the prayers of preparation at the altar. Yeah, um, this is... Uh, uh, do you, do you is his name Anton Baumstark? Yes. Is, I don't know if this is one of his uh, things or not. I haven't read him for a long time. But he says, when things get added to the liturgy, they usually get appended to the ends of liturgical units, if you want to say. And so even um, like today, I think it's very popular, at least in the diocese. We do, we, in the diocese of La Crosse, we pray the uh, St. Michael prayer. Uh, and I think other places do as well. But the you can mass. see they, they, they kind of attach themselves right to either the end of the Liturgy of the Word or the end uh, of the Mass. Yeah, and so those things were, you know, uh, helpful and, and thought uh, pastorally uh, desirous at one time. But they, um, I don't know, at least in, 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 in principle here, what the uh, fathers are saying is they can uh, make the essence less clear and so those things that are added to little advantage should be considered to be taken away. So the last Gospel of John, for instance, was one of those that they took out after the council. Now the question, of course, is, were those to little advantage, or is it actually to great advantage of the people to hear the priest say, 
I'm going up to the altar of God, the God who brings joy to my youth. I'm not worthy to do this. And suddenly it puts everybody in the right frame of mind that this is a sacrifice that's important and all that. Yeah. So the question is, how much advantage would there really be? What do they think the advantage was then versus now? And so that's the discussion that's always See, hard but to I have. Th- but that, if it's discussed in that light, how we're presenting it, then you're in the right arena to um, at least come to a conclusion. If you're discussing it because, well, it should be done or shouldn't be done because they've always done it that way or that just signifies old-fashionedness or what. I mean, those things are irrelevant. The, the context is, is does it facilitate an active encounter with Jesus Christ? And if it, that's how it's discussed, then I think you can get to some uh, hater. So they add the other side of the coin, too. Um, other elements which have suffered injury through accidents of history are now to be restored to the earlier norm of the Holy Father. So if there were some good things that got pushed aside, like the Easter Vigil becoming... 8 a.m. instead of <laughs> at night, uh, then restore it to what it should be. If there's some things that got duplicated unnecessarily, then lose them because they're not helping. So it, it's always this question. This is, what does it say there next to that paragraph, Jesse? The bottom of paragraph 48, my handwriting. What do you need, your readers? It says Aristotle beauty, too slow. So, you know. <laughs> your thumb was in the way. I'm Ar- sorry. <laughs> God, I was trying to. <laughs> Aristotle's definition of beauty is uh, something that nothing can be added or removed without injury, without making it uglier. Yeah, and nothing can be added, taken away, or changed, but for the worse, mm-hmm. right? So if you're deficient and you need something to be more beautiful, that makes it better, not worse. Isn't it kind of what they say the priest can and can't do in the Mass itself? It's like they can't uh, they change? They can't add or, or take away or yeah, change yeah, it, because it's considered ideal. Well, talk about the spirit of Attica, too. That's the very first norm in this whole baby, is, is no one, not even if he's a priest, can add, remove, or change anything on his own authority. So what they're saying here, the, uh, the beautification of the liturgy, although they don't use the word beauty, is get rid of anything that's excessive and bring in anything that's deficient and you'll come to this nice, happy mean or medium, which is where beauty is found between the extremes of deficiency and excess. And so it's kind of classical worldview kind of stuff. Now the challenge is, how do you do that without upsetting people and get rid of, getting rid of essentials yeah. or things people are attached yeah. to. Maybe, maybe one uh, last point on this is where sure. it says, uh, All right, to, the vigor, more, to the vigor which they had in the uh, days of the Holy Fathers. Now this is interesting, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, I think uh, uh, most people associate this type of thinking with the Second Vatican Council. But in fact, it showed up in 1570 in Quo Primum, which was the Missal of Trent promulgated by Pius V, is what they were trying to do then was to restore the Missal back to the vigor that it once had in the time of the Fathers. And the Fathers being the early centuries of the Church, right? right First eight right. or so centuries. But I think in the, in the meantime, the context has changed, right? So there, in the 20th century, there's a great patristic revival uh, that, that accompanies this. And I think what you see in the 60s and 70s and accompanied by thinking that all these scholastics and these medievals were just uh, uh, adding things on that were misunderstanding and weren't helpful, and maybe in some cases they were, but this sort of perceived golden age, and true enough, the patristic period does have a a privileged spot, but that everything medieval was to be, you know, discarded or something like that. Uh, And so it, um, when this is misread, as if it were read to be get rid of the medieval stuff and go back to the uh, you know the so-called golden days of uh, the patristic period, this uh, interpretation is very different in 1570 than it was in 1970. 1970. So um, 
Yeah, and so what do we have today but uh, uh, this notion of a hermeneutic of renewal and reform that sees that the the Mass and the liturgy didn't, you know, begin in 1963 or things like that, Uh, but it has to be read in light of all of the Church's tradition. One thing you don't see here that you do see later, like from Paul VI, is they would talk about modern men. The sensibilities of modern men are so different. The sense of modern men who love simplicity and whatever, you don't see that language in Sacrosanct and Kachilin. Like, modern man needs this whole new way of seeing the world they just say this is the nature of the liturgy let's make it shine for the world is later on that it becomes modern man is so different i think this is in many ways is a classical worldview that uh, doesn't show up the modern side of it doesn't show up till later it is so hard to get you guys to stop talking about oh, this. Oh, because I got another one. I haven't <laughs> mentioned, right, one more, uh, one more. Uh, uh, what was his name, Aiden? Uh, Nichols. Uh, Aiden oh Nichols. I haven't mentioned him in a long time. <laughs> well, then it's time. Do you, you, remember, you remember his classic he invented about Pie a tale Christ, of right? two documents. Oh, yeah. Uh, but he says Sacrosanctum Concilium is, in fact, a very conservative uh, doc, uh, document. Uh, that Mediator Day is more of a progressive document, and Sacrosanctum Concilium is more of a conservative uh, traditional one because it has a more of its uh, eye on the, you know, kind of checking things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, we didn't get to the halfway point. There's just so many riches wah, to wah, lay wah, out wah. here. <laughs> we'll but we will there. next yeah, time. We'll just get it there next time. All right. Uh, Chris, yeah? you answer a question. We both, we're going to go get some lunch. So Okay, just right, leave it. Just just, leave yeah, it I'll just leave the question. What, is, what does you. this chord do? No. <laughs> oh, gosh. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, everybody, we have a question from Kelly. This Kelly! Week. Listen up. Awesome. Kelly says, we are having a conversation in our parish about whether a renewal of baptismal promises is liturgically appropriate at, mass of, at the Mass of Baptism of the Lord this weekend or just the sprinkling rite. If renewal is not liturgically appropriate, I am interested to know if there are any guidelines for a paraliturgical ceremony where baptismal promises can be renewed in a faith formation classroom. Thanks. Hmm. Uh, I think the first answer is no, not appropriate. Generally, if the church wants you to do something, she'll tell you to do it. And so if... I've done it at masses sometimes before. When is it typically done? Uh, Easter Vigil and Easter Sunday. Ah, okay. So, uh, so I think no. If uh, if that were a viable option, it would be put forward as such. The second thing is, though, uh, and I think this is confusing me, so the, the renewal of baptismal promises in the form of the creed takes place after the homily. The sprinkling rite takes place uh, during the penitential act. So those are two different parts of the Mass. So if you were going to use some holy water, 
the more appropriate thing and legit thing to do would be to substitute the sprinkling right for one of the options in the Penitential Act. Okay. Uh, the third point, is there a paraliturgical time to do this? I don't know the answer to that, but I would think it's yes. Uh, I was speaking to somebody who works in RCIA uh, recently, and on Holy Saturday, there's a, there's a minor rite for those who are not baptized, and it's called something like the handing over of the creed, where in the ancient church, the, the bishop would teach them the creed, and they would have to recite it back. Okay? But this is meant in the RCIA for those who are not baptized. So the question was, is there something similar for those who are baptized on Holy Saturday? I said, well, there's nothing in the right, but uh, it seems it would be a good idea so that when, when folks go to the Easter Vigil for their confirmation or whatever, reception in the church, and they're going to renew their baptismal promises, well, why not have a look at what those promises are so that at the Easter Vigil, they're not just kind of blah, 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 I do, blah, 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 I do, or you know, in one ear, out the other, but they're, they're really meaningful and substantial. So I yeah, why wouldn't you study the creed outside of the Mass? All the first part of the catechism is on the creed. So I think the answer is yes to and, that. But there's nothing official. You can renew your wedding vows in the context of a Mass, correct? Sort of. Even that's a little uh, interesting, is uh, you don't actually renew the vows. You don't repeat those vows. So in the rite of, or the order of Christian matrimony, which I think it's called, in the appendix, there's a, a blessing of a couple on the occasion of their anniversary. And the priest asks them some questions, but they are not the same questions, not the vows that you would make at, uh, at your wedding. I am a little bit hazy on this, but I think there's a, there's a real distinction between the vows made, say, during an ordination or a wedding and the renewal of, of those vows because they take different forms. I don't know what the, the theological import of that is, but they're not quite the same things. But can it be done within the Mass? Any Mass? Sure. Okay. Uh, well, can what? A, a renewal of wedding um, vows. Yes, it can take place during okay. Mass. Anytime, just because people find it pastorally helpful, or it's only limited to yeah, well, uh, Easter Vigil and confirmations. Oh, no, no, hang on. We, went, we moved over to uh, wedding vows. Oh, weddings. Oh, sorry. Yeah. sorry. But no, the baptismal vows, I think the, only, I think the only Masses where this is foreseen is at uh, the Paschal Vigil and Easter Sunday. If there's another one, I, I just... But the sprinkling right is... But that's something different. Yeah, see, okay. see, the renewal of baptismal promises takes the place of the creed, which is near the end of the Liturgy of the Word. The sprinkling rite is at the penitential act. There are different parts of the Mass. Oh, okay. okay? So there, it's not an apples-to-apples apples thing. But anybody could renew their baptismal promises anytime they want at home, right? Especially yeah. maybe on the anniversary of your baptism. Well, that's or, why it would yeah. be a good paraliturgical yes. thing because... Because you now, whether it's it. inserted in the mass or not is a different question. Yeah. Okay. Well, Kelly, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet Chris. Don't do that. Tweet the Liturgy Guys at Liturgy Guys. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.